We are living in a culture right now that says there's no God. But I would say that that's only a few of the elites. <laughs> in the hearts all around us, people are crying out to know the answer. In fact, that has been the way it has been throughout history. You go back to the pagan world and go back to the Greek culture, for instance, like Plato, the famous uh, philosopher, said, it is hard to investigate and to find the framer and father of the universe. And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which all could understand. That's a blessing, wasn't it? Then Aristotle, he, another famous philosopher, spoke of God as the supreme cause, by all men dreamed of and by no man known. <laughs> the ancient world did not doubt that there was a God or gods, but it believed if they were there, they were unknowable by mankind. Well, my friends, it's wonderful to gather here tonight and know that if we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we know that He is not unknowable. Amen. And that He is a God that can be found. In fact, He is a God endeavoring to find us. Amen. A farmer repeatedly asked a friend to come over to his orchard and, and get his apples and to make cider out of them and, and eat them. He was so proud of his uh, he had a really high level uh, orchard and the friend just kept saying no I, I really don't I don't need that that's fine it was a little hurtful to to the uh, farmer and so finally he said uh, I guess you're prejudiced against my apples he said well I have to admit I've eaten some of them right there along the the border to your uh, land there your your orchard and boy they are terrible they're sour <laughs> the farmer laughed. He says, oh, yes, they're sour. I planted them to fool the boys who live around here. But if you come into the middle of my orchard, you will find a different taste. You know, many believers know there's a God, but still, like the world, ask, where is God? Or who is God? And in fact, many times they have a sour taste about their experience in Bible Christianity. And they live around the orchard of the presence of God and taste that which is not really truly the presence of God. They don't go into the inner place of His presence. Today I would like us to look at this theme passage from Exodus chapter 3. If you would turn there with me here this evening. Exodus chapter 3. A very, very strategic chapter in the history of Israel. Frankly, a very, very important, pivotal chapter for us as God's people. This was an amazing time when God revealed Himself. And so I want to begin at verse 1 of chapter 1 of Exodus chapter, uh, uh, chapter 3 here this evening. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the, burn, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Here is a wonderful revelation of God to mankind. By the way, in your lap is the revelation of God to mankind. Amen. God has from the beginning all the way through shown who He is by His careful revelation of Himself and truth so that we can know Him. And so, first of all, I want us to see here just simply the fact of God's presence. And uh, this unique situation here that we, we see. This was in the valley in the middle of the mountains of Sinai, of Horeb, uh, which would eventually be called the mountain of God. In fact, the valley there was two miles long and one-third to two-thirds of a mile wide. And it had water in abundance, which for the Sinaitic Peninsula was a very uh, unique uh, happening. And so he took his sheep there. And so we see that his presence appeared as fire. Appeared as fire. Now Moses was uh, being very faithful uh, in the duties that God had given him. And let's just do a quick little review Moses, the next Pharaoh of Egypt. Moses, brought up in the most luxurious palace in the history of the world. Moses, miraculously protected by God. For 40 years, Moses had, had been groomed to become the leader of the most powerful kingdom on earth at that time, stretching over the ancient world. Not only was Egypt powerful in its own land, you can go to many lands and you will see mighty fortresses that the Egyptians had built, and all that they had done still is a marvel to our modern understanding of building and architecture and understanding science. Egypt was a place in which demonic power was extremely prevalent. And so Moses, for 40 years, had been trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. And he knew that his future was to be the one to sit on the throne of Egypt, to be the next Pharaoh. He was a great general, that's what history tells us, and had had victories. 40 years is a long time. But God had put in his heart a love for Jehovah God, his dear mother. 
his dear father. We don't fully understand it all, but in those very sensitive years, he had been given a sense of destiny that was greater than being the Pharaoh. He had a sense of destiny that was on the divine level. For God had made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God was going to have his own people, a theocracy, and he was going to be the one to lead these people. And at the end of that 40 years, in his own strength, he tries to begin that deliverance and miserably fails by killing the taskmaster. And that was found out by his brethren. It wasn't long until the Pharaoh had found out. And so Moses had to flee into the wilderness. He went from the most powerful man next to Pharaoh to the lowliest concept you can have of an occupation to an Egyptian was that of a shepherd. And there with the Midianites. A Jew with the Midianites. Now, 40 years is a long time. 40 more years. 40 years in the wilderness. This man lost his hope. He had failed. He had taken it into his own hands. He was wandering there on the backside of the desert taking care of sheep. <laughs> and that was it. That was life. Didn't seem like there was any future. His vision had been dashed. His great early opportunity to be the Pharaoh had been lost. He was just going to die a shepherd in the desert. That's where we pick up Exodus chapter 3. That's an amazing thing. Now, friends, I believe there are many preachers. I believe there are many believers who had a wonderful vision to see what God could do in their lives. A God-given biblical vision. Excited about it. And began to prepare to see God use them. Pastors take churches. Godly laymen began to uh, have ministries that God has gifted them to do. But what has been so common in America, we've taken them, taken the ministry into our own hands. We tried to accomplish the vision through human means. We were about advancing ourselves in the vision rather than seeing God glorified in the fulfillment of that vision. Friends, it is tragic when you think about how many preachers have left the ministry. In fact, the majority of young people going to the mission field are back in six years and done. The number of former preachers across this land would make you sick. Here in the state of Wisconsin, I don't know what the number is, we have 15 churches to 20 that I know that need pastors. Your state probably is the same. There are plenty of men called to the ministry that could fill every pulpit and have a great church planning movement in America. I'm not even talking about young people 
that haven't listened to the call. I'm talking about men who have been called and did do some level of service. But we have been a do-it-yourself, make it, you know, the American uh, ingenuity and creativity, and we're going to learn how to do it better. And then we see a culture become increasingly materialistic and humanistic. We see the leftist move of our country. We see all of the things going on, and, and uh, we <clears throat> see pop culture be so uh, dominant through the media. We see it so strong through every facet of our culture. And instead of our churches and our preachers understanding that when God calls, He will enable and He can do uh, a powerful work, we have succumbed to a contextualization of our ministries with a world that hates God. You know, when we look back, folks, over the last decades, we talk about, we have different terms that we use for the compromising of fundamental Christianity. One, of course, an old term is new evangelicalism, or today, modern evangelicalism. And you can, there's a number of other terms. But I tell you, over the last year in particular, as I've watched our nation so quickly turn away from anything biblical, I begin to realize, you know, the compromise back in the 50s and 60s was not about just how you look and how you live. It was, it was compromising with, with a culture that for decades was moving away from a creationist biblical perspective to a man-centered humanist perspective and, and the evangelical world wanted to be able to have the commendation of that culture and to, and to be able to merge with it enough so that we weren't so out of step and what we did was bring the ugly unbelief of Satan that has been in our culture right into our churches. And before we get too hard on the evangelicals, we've been tainted by that in fundamental Baptist circles also. And so, it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that preachers are saying, where's God? Shouldn't surprise us that pastors of megachurches all over the world have fallen into the sins of the culture. Shouldn't surprise us that laymen just sort of give up on sacrificial Christianity and there's a whole movement of young people that don't want anything to do with Bible Christianity that were brought up in godly churches. Now, by the way, the good news is there's a slew of young people that are on fire for God. Okay. So I, this is not a pessimistic uh, message, but I want to give the background here because there's a lot of parallels with Moses. Moses gave up. He was done. And I tell you what, if we don't meet with God, we'll be done eventually. That we can. We can meet with God all the time. And so God's presence, it's an amazing thing here, there in Mount Horeb, which was the mountain of God. It would be the place just months later that he would come back. Uh, that's just a glorious thing. But in verse 2, it talks about the angel of the Lord, which was God himself. We know that from the later verses, came in a flame of fire. Listen, if you do a study of the revelation of God in his fullness, it's always in fire. 
Listen, our God is filled with glory. Our God is not distant. Our God is not mundane. Our God is not a projection of man's thinking. Our God is divine. He's the creator. He's the one holding the whole atomic structure of this universe together. And my friends, when he appears, the glory burns. And so Moses, as he saw this, he was overwhelmed. A bush that was not consumed. What a God. You probably heard the story about a kindergarten teacher who asked the boy what he was drawing. And without even pausing to look up, he said, I'm, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher smiled and responded, but nobody knows what God looks like. And very seriously, he put down his crayon, looked her squarely in the eye and, they, and said, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> What is our concept of God? What is our concept of God? How do we really view Him? Oh, my friends, when we begin to get a glimpse of who our God is, our heart burns within us because of the holy fire of God, the blaze of His glory. This fire was not natural. It was God's presence. It was God's moving in mankind. It was the way that the glory of God was displayed. And uh, it's just uh, every time you, you find God revealing himself, you'll see that Daniel chapter 9, verse 7, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. And my friends, when John turned and saw the burning torches which are the local churches in the midst of those, fire, uh, those uh, churches that were afire. By the way, when John turned around and looked, he didn't say something about the Lord first. He noticed the torches. Those aren't little candlesticks, folks. Those were torches on fire, and that's what every one of our churches ought to be. Amen. And it was, they were on fire because they were, uh, Jesus Christ was in the midst. And uh, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw the seven golden candlesticks we find in Revelation 1 12 and 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of man clothed with a garment down to his foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. My friends, when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, he, the smoke ascended, he couldn't even handle it. It was even the vision was overwhelming for him. That's our God. My friends, he's real. Amen. He's on the throne. Yes, Our Savior is the one that is mentioned here. And let me just say, when we get to know our God, something burns in our soul. We talk about zeal. We talk about being on fire for God. That's a reality. 
Because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And when we are right with God, there is a holy enthusiasm that begins to match the fire of God. My friends, mediocre Christianity fails. We also see in this encounter he, that God acknowledged Moses personally. I love this. Here you have this just amazing sight of the glory of God, the flame of fire. And Moses turns to see this, and the Lord uh, saw that he had turned aside, verse 4, and God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Servant? <laughs> no, what did he call him? Moses. Friends, he knows each one of us by name. You were created, you were conceived by his will. Every little baby was created by Almighty God. By the way, every baby is important. No matter how that baby came into being, they are precious in the sight of God. And he knows them by name. And this whole battle of worldviews is a big deal because they're messing with the creation of Almighty God. That those that he loves, that he created and shed his blood to save, they are messing with the God of heaven. It's a big deal. It's not a small matter. But aren't you glad he knew Moses' name? Moses. Now you can imagine, now put yourself in his sandals. You are, you're there and, uh, and he's just overwhelmed. He sees uh, this unbelievable sight and then this voice comes and calls him by name. <laughs> That'd be, that's just amazing. God spoke his name. Listen, anytime you hear your name, you're affected by it. It touches you. Don't you love it when somebody knows your name? That's why it's important to learn people's names so that you believe that they are important to you. And so Moses turned to see the presence of God and God spoke to him by name. And, uh, and let me just say this. God is endeavoring to meet with each one of us. The first glimpse of our God after creation is when he called somebody else by name. Adam, where art thou? Isn't that an amazing thing? You see him as the pursuing God. He's the one who's brokenhearted over sin. He'd already prepared to be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He sought after Adam. As one teacher said, you can never be a preacher if you read it as though God were a policeman. Read it as though God were a broken-hearted father looking for his lost child. What a God we have. Two missionaries went to a village in Korea years ago. The gospel had never been preached there. And it was noise abroad that these men had come. And so the entire community, it was a large group, a uh, hundreds of folks came to hear their message. And they were so focused on it and so moved by it that the missionaries went late into the night and finally were so tired they had to stop and said, listen, we'll get back together in the morning 
uh, but we've got to get some sleep. So they tried to sleep, but they kept hearing the murmuring and the talking going on, and it just they just couldn't sleep. So one of them came out about 2 o'clock in the morning. He said, why don't you go home now and get to sleep? It's very late, and, it, and we're tired. And the head man of the village answered, and this is substance of what he says, how can we sleep? You have told us that the supreme power is not an evil spirit trying to injure us, but a loving God who gave His only begotten Son for our salvation. And that if we turn away from our sins and trust Him, we may have the deliverance from fear, guidance in our perplexities, comfort in our sorrows. How can we sleep after a message like this? Now that woke up the two missionaries and they went back, they went back to work. But that's how we ought to think. How can we sleep with a message like this? He knows you by name. You are included in his death, burial, and resurrection. He loves you to the uttermost. He has done all that is needed for you to have the fullness of life. He cares about you more than any man can articulate. Friends, how can we sleep when we think of a, the God who's on fire calls us by name? The God who has great glory and power cares about me and he cares about you. That's glorious, folks. You're not alone. You're not having to wander in this dark humanistic world that's against God uh, with no hope. My friends, we are right now in union, if we're saved, with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he cares about us and he will work. Now, Another thing about how God revealed himself here is the fact that he is, he is holy. That's part of his great glory. And um, so Moses said, here am I in verse 4. And then the Lord said, draw not hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. The presence of God demanded a holistic preparation of the one who would aspire to enter into his presence. Therefore, to teach Moses this lesson, God set up these boundaries. Don't come any closer. And he commanded that they, he should remove his sandals. And this was to keep him from rationally, rationally getting into the presence of God. That's going to, uh, that happens in Exodus chapter 19 when the people are now back at Mount Sinai and there's a boundary put up. Now, folks, if we, as, Mo, as I say ahead and hear Moses, if we could even begin to get a glimpse of what the holiness of God really means, it would bring terror to our soul. But you know, we live in the New Testament day in which we understand what God has done for us. But we must not forget that this God, who knows us by name, who has revealed his presence to us, he's holy. Amen. Separate from sin, yes. separate from any of the evil of mankind. Yes. And we must not lower who he is to make ourselves feel comfortable. Come on, preacher. He is holy. Philadelphia pastor once spoke to a discipleship group on the attributes of God and he began by asking them to list God's qualities in order of importance. Well, he was shocked by what they said. They first, they put love first, 
followed by wisdom, then power, mercy, omniscience, and truth. At the end of the list, they put holiness. <laughs> uh, well, he told them, you don't find loving, 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 or wise, 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 or omniscient, omniscient, omniscient. All those are glorious attributes. But you read over and over, holy, holy, holy. Because all of the moral attributes of God, and frankly the perfections of God, come out of His holiness. Now friends, I just want to say this. If we were to see God's manifestation, we still could not come. But a certain distance. But i got good news for you. He's in here. He's in here. The Holy Spirit is in me and He's in you if you're a believer. I want you to get a hold of that. But if the Old Testament believers could not approach unto the, uh, to the manifestation of a holy God, oh, how we need to, in a loving but uh, just a genuine way, realize I'm the temple of the Holy Ghost. I am not my own. And my friends, let me just say this. You'll never know your God until you accept the fact that He's holy. Because He was holy, He could die for your sins. Because He was holy, He could create this world. Because He is holy, He hasn't blown this world up. It's really true. Because He is holy, He has done all of the loving things that we know. But my friends, it must grieve the heart of God. For the lack of holiness in God's people's lives. Oh, we love to think about coming into His presence. Oh, it's just the most wonderful thing. We can do that all the time and we can have times when God spiritually really reveals Himself to us. But my friends, you can't get close to God if you ignore His holiness. That's why we have to deal with impurity. That's why we have to deal with anything that is not of the character of our God and the application of it in the Word of God. God wants us to draw near. As Dahan said, lower our sense of holiness and our sense of sin is lowered. That's the big problem. Well, folks... God wants, just like He had the burning bush for Moses, He wants you to draw near. He wants you to come. He wants you to come. He created us so that we would know Him. He created us for that intimate relationship. He created us for us to know His presence. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart, and the only way we ever find meaning, purpose, and fullness of life is to have a genuine, intimate, spiritual relationship with our God. I love the statement by A.W. Tozer. The practice of the presence of God consists not of projecting an imaginary object from within his own mind and then seeking to realize its presence. It is rather to recognize the real presence of the one whom all sound theology declares to be already there. And let me just say, he's here right now. He's in your heart. We have this idea we've got to go find him somewhere. He's trying to find you. He wants to know you. 
He wants to bring that fullness of his glory into your life. My friends, if we do not get back to that reality of knowing God personally, don't be afraid of that. You can have an intimate day-by-day, hour-by-hour relationship with Him. You can know your God. If we don't get back to that, we're going to wonder where He is. And we're going to have more people fall off the map. Well, secondly, God's purpose. And we'll move through these quickly here. His purpose for meeting with Moses after Moses learned of this is, this is, uh, this is divinity. We read in verse 6, Moreover, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptian and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt. Why did he meet with Moses? Because he heard the cry of his people. Isn't that wonderful? Look throughout Scripture how many times the Bible writers cried out or called out. And in every case you see God answers. You see, when we cry out or call out, that means we know we can't and he can. We are looking to the right source. In Israel, it was... A very difficult situation. Misery finally found a voice. They began to realize that living in this glorious Egyptian world, a picture of the world uh, where they had delightful foods, wealth and fatness, actually meant they were now, they had slave masters. They were forced labor and bondage. God got them to a place where they lost the glamour of the most powerful empire and lost their trust in it and they were crying out and the minute people get to the bottom and understand their need and cry out God hears listen friend one of the best praise uh, prayers you can ever pray is just to cry out and say Lord help me help me I don't know what to do help me he'll hear you he'll hear you because he's a delivering God And he allows us sometimes to go through difficulties so that we will cry out and not be so uh, self-sufficient and live according to this world. He is, like the Savior said in Luke 4.18, quoting from uh, the Old Testament, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. It is in the very character of God to deliver. Amen. That's why Jesus went to the cross. 
My friend, this matter of knowing God is just glorious because once He is our deliverer, our Savior from sin, and we have been imputed righteousness, and we have been regenerated and become a child of God, and we have eternal life, my friends, we have the right to come to Him and realize He is still my deliverer. He is still my Savior. And He will work in me, and I am His child, and that's what I want us to get, folks. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He wants to deliver. Right now, He wants to deliver you. I'll guarantee you there's a number of people here that have some sins you don't think you can be delivered from. Or you don't think you can ever really have the power of God, or you just aren't, you just are sort of a second class Christian. That is not true. Every promise in the Word of God is yours. Everything about your identity in Christ is reality for you. And the minute you get to the place that you begin to believe God and start crying out to Him to deliver you, you're going to see God work. And we need to start that even tonight. Well, I'm telling you, I love Corey Ten Boom, how God used her suffering to give her such a relationship with the Lord. She said, when I bring my sins to the Lord Jesus, he casts them into the depths of the sea, forgiven and forgotten. He also puts a sign, no fishing allowed. <laughs> the problem is we go fishing. And uh, what a glorious salvation. He is our deliverer. And he was going to fulfill the covenant that he had made. You see that throughout these verses. I won't go into detail, but it was promised uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would have a people. And then when Jacob went down to uh, Egypt, when he found out about Joseph, uh, we read in uh, Genesis 36, 1, he went to Beersheba to offer sacrifices. Verse 2, and God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy fathers. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for there, for I will there make thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will surely bring thee up again. That was the promise of God that he would do that. Folks, it is amazing that Israel's back in the land right now. Back in 1896, when Herzl. That brilliant Austrian journalist published the, uh, that article about the Jewish state, how it just, God just ignited it and caused Jews around the world to begin to think of having their own land. But we know he's a deliverer. See, this is where we go so often. All right, we know God's, who God is and we desire his presence and we know that he is the deliverer but what's God's plan? Well, God's plan is for us. I uh, uh, read recently of a, uh, a make-believe story about Gabriel in heaven uh, after the great salvation was accomplished and, and uh, the Lord uh, was burdened to reach the world with the gospel. And Gabriel says, all right, uh, how's this going to work? And he says, well, my disciples, they're going to, to do it. And Gabriel says, those are going to do this? And, he's, and he said, Lord, is there, isn't there a plan B? <laughs> there ain't no plan B, folks. Uh, as I 
As the Father has sent me, so send I you. God commissioned Moses to lead the deliverance. Verse 11, and Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And so Moses had to accept the fact, yes, he's a Savior, but my friends, he does the saving through his people. Both for the lost and both for believers. And that's why, folks, we've got to get back to that walk with God and believing him and having the fire of God in our hearts because we are the instruments of God's eternal plan going on right now, and there's no plan B. We are the Moseses, if I can say that, of our day. Every one of us. Moses had to be crushed to understand this. That 40 years in the wilderness. And many times, folks, God will allow trials to purge us so that we can bear more fruit. Whenever I go through a trial, I go back to John chapter 15, verse 4, the, the fact that he purges us so that, or verse 2, so that we can bear more fruit. And God wants to do a great work. Now, now, the big problem here initially, and I don't have time here, but you look at the interaction between Moses and God, he just doesn't believe God here because he sees too much of himself. This is the point of the conference. He saw God's glory. He heard God's voice. He had God's commission and he had God's promise that they would come back to this mountain as a people. When God says it, it's going to happen. But he's looking at Moses. I can't speak. He's looking at the people. And he was right. They were a mess. And so was he. But he wasn't looking at God. And he wasn't looking at how God looked at him. My friends, every vision you've had that's biblical and from God, God means to keep that vision. It's about time every preacher here and every Christian here gets back to the vision that God gave us somewhere when we dedicated our hearts. My dad said to me over and over, don't lose your initial vision. In fact, God has a greater work to do than even what that vision is. But we look at ourselves because we, we do not have a proper view of God. And oh, how many Christian workers, one that I read about, talked about he had been the leader of a, uh, of a youth organization. He had been a, a professor for years, pastor to church, and he hadn't won anybody to Christ. He had even come to some theological reasons why it was okay, if you know what I mean. And... Um, so uh, he was able to, uh, but, but he was convicted all the time about it. And then he heard the words of the little song, Lead me to some soul today. Oh, teach me, Lord, just what to say. And he began to start praying that. Well, when he started to pray it, a young lady came across his path, opened up to him about her need, and uh, someone that was there on that college. And he boldly gave the gospel she got saved and she's now a missionary to South America. 
he then, the next Monday night, started go vi going visiting. By the way, that still needs to be done. Soul winning, witnessing. And he went knocking on doors. And a man came, and instead of shrinking back, he said, can I ask you a question? He just went right in the gospel. That man got saved. He is now a deacon in, a, in the church that he's in, and his whole family is committed to Christ. Amen. That's what happens when we look at God instead of ourselves. And God promises Moses his power for deliverance. His grace is sufficient. Oh, I think of Moody when he was in that great mission in London. Uh, there were noblemen and noble women there, and it was just packed, and he got to a scripture lesson which Elias was uh, said, and he kept Elias, and he just stumbled all over it. He tried several times, and finally he just closed the Bible, and with deep emotion he looked up and said, Oh God, use this stammering tongue to preach Christ crucified to these people, and the power of God came upon him. Friends, it isn't us, it is God. As Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. And you go through this story here, and it's a contest between Moses and and God and God wins. Amen. Because he started looking at God Amen. instead of himself. Right. And quickly in conclusion, God's person. He knew, listen, Moses was right. The people weren't going to follow him. And he knew Amenhotep II was not going to listen to him. He understood that he had absolutely no standing to even enter the palace. He knew the mess that he was in. He was aware of the Israelites' need. There was no getting around it. But then God commissions him by giving his, his name. He says, who should I, verse 13, who do I say, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? Last part of verse 13, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me. I am truly he who exists and who will be dynamically present then and there in the situation to which I am sending you. This is no, need, this is no new name for God, but it was the first time it was in the third person. And it became the name uh, that was the personal covenant name of Jehovah God to his people. My friends, we go forward in his name and not in ours. And we're going to be looking at I am that I am. Folks, he's been throughout all eternity. He has never changed. He is the almighty holy God. He spoke the worlds into being. He's been on the throne from eternity past and all the way to eternity future. He, has, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything about us. He knows this world. He looks down at these leaders from Russia to China or wherever and laughs. America. That's our God. I am that I am. And I've sent you. I have sent you. 
I don't care how impossible it is. I don't care what the situation is. I don't care how maybe hard-hearted the people are, how politically it's impossible for you to do this. I am that I am have sent you. Therefore, go in the name of the Lord. And I will accomplish what I have told you that I would do. And so my friends, as we finish here tonight, are we going to be like a lot of folks and just do the easy route or like Hananiah Judson who had a great position that was going to be offered to him in Boston and he said, I can't do it. I've got to do what God's called me to do. He might have had a nice little ministry there but he went over to Myanmar eventually from India to Myanmar, Burma those days. There are, there have been hundreds of thousands saved because of Aniram Judson. We have three students in our college from Myanmar. And as one got up and said one day, he said, I'm here because of Aniram Judson. He made the right choice. I am that I am sent him. And when you are in the will of God, there is no stopping what God will do. The miracles will come. Oh, friends, let's serve him with all of our hearts and let's get back to believing that he wants to know us, he knows us by name, and let's yield our hearts to him. Let's bow for prayer.